Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the show that finds ways to say out loud what we're all trying to grapple with in our own heads. Today I'm chatting to Clover Stroud. The pain of the death of somebody you love is so physically excruciating, mentally tormenting. But I was also at that time really aware of a strange kind of breaking open of myself and I felt like sensually absolutely awakened to everything that was going on around me and I started noticing very very bright colour like a bowl of fruit would suddenly be really really brightly coloured or an animal a deer across the other side of the field would be bright brown in a really really beautiful way. Clover is a journalist and the author of The Wild Other and My Wild and Sleepless Nights Her latest book, The Red of My Blood, examines her relationship with death after her beloved sister Nell died of breast cancer at 46 years old. I met Clover at an event last year and I was so excited to invite her over to my house to have this really beautiful chat. Just to set the scene for you, she came over on the day Storm Franklin was whipping and whistling around. Part of my studio in the garden was sort of falling apart. The corner of the studio was flapping in the wind, which was slightly disconcerting. Franklin even managed to get past the lovely pink sound padded walls of my studio at home at points. So you might hear the whistling wind or the crashing of a tree branch from the side of the studio. So I apologise about that. It was Franklin. Anyway, I got an advanced copy of The Red of My Blood and I just felt so strongly that I needed to explore more of Clover's thoughts with her. She talks so exquisitely about the beauty, the colour and the life that death brought into her personal world and how death can teach us that it's the tiny moments in life that truly matter It's the in-jokes, the day-to-day funny glances and human connections that we remember when someone's gone. And that should be liberating for us now. We can slow down, stop seeking grand success and really just focus on the little things. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, here's the show. Clover. Hi, Fern. Hi, Clover. Thank you so much for coming all the way to my house today. I massively appreciate it. It's a complete joy. It's a real pleasure to be here. That top is amazing. (laughs) It's the best. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, Labyrinth was one of the greatest films of my childhood. I know. I saw it in a charity shop and then it had already been sold from the charity shop. But then a friend messaged me saying, I've got a T-shirt like that and you can have it. It's the greatest. I think it's the film I've seen the most, Labyrinth. Really? Yeah, it was just something about it as a kid that I couldn't 
let go of. I needed more. I mean, who doesn't want more David Bowie in their lives? Yeah, yeah. Best, the best. So look, we first met, I'm trying to work out when it was. I know it was sort of towards the end of last year. Yeah. We were at an event and we, this is what I love about the work that I get to do is when I meet new people, we don't have to do the bollocky small talk yeah. stuff. We go in at the deep end, which is what you and I did, surrounded by... There was a sort of floral vagina to yeah. my left. <laughs> and lots of volivants. And there we were talking about like heavy stuff. Mm. And I really loved talking to you in that moment mm. and loved meeting you. So I'm, I'm glad we can do a, a proper follow up today. No, it was great, actually. There was a lot of chat going on around us. And it was because it was a sort of morning event. There was that normal thing of quite a lot of surface chat happening very quickly. And lots of people taking pictures and so on. And we were like straight into death, trauma, yeah. sex, life. Yeah. And I and it was a yeah, it was a it was a really, really lovely connection. That's the only way I like talking, yeah, really. Totally. If I'm really honest, totally. I find it's why I don't like going to parties. I don't like doing all the usual bit. I it just doesn't do anything for me. And that might sound a bit selfish, but I just wanna go deep straight away and yeah, have that connection, I guess, mm. with someone mm. um, through whether it's shared experience or me learning, which is a big part of it mm. as well, which is what I love. And it was a strange time because literally, I don't know how many days before, one of my friends had died very suddenly and very out of the blue. And that got us talking about grief. And I learned about your sister dying. And it was, I guess there is... Um, a level of comfort being able to talk about losing someone and that grief really openly and meeting someone at that place. Yeah, it is a meeting, definitely. And I think I, I've i had a lot of loss and a lot of trauma in my life. And then my sister died in 2019, which was just, as you can imagine, the most kind of horrific loss. And I am in life always looking for the people that I can have the kind of conversations and those meetings with. And I often think of, um, you know, we're, I'm, I am really fascinated by death and talking about death and bringing it into our lives in the most kind of vivid and lively way that we possibly can. And I talk with my kids about it all the time to the point that they kind of slightly roll their eyes because I'm talking about death yet again. <laughs> but in, in that way, it does become part of the dialogue and part of the way that you are communicating and living with each other. And I do think that it kind of... I mean, obviously, I, I will never be able to prepare my children for my death and it would be a sort of weirdly morbid thing to do. But to have had conversations with them about it so that they know what I think about it so that we've had like kind of lively funny ridiculous debates about is there a god is there an afterlife do you believe in reincarnation it makes us all feel a bit more robust about it I think as well and also because we're like completely divorced from death in our lives mm. you know it happens in a in a sort of secret private place and we don't know how to welcome people into our lives who are mourning as well and who are grieving. Yes, it uh, can often be awkward is, mm. some, is the word, I guess. Like people mm. don't know how to approach you. And mm. I know that you talk a lot this, about this in your beautiful book that I've got here, The Red of My Blood, which I... Oh, my God, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I just loved every minute. And I felt like you could have written 
millions more pages and there would still not be enough of the stuff within you sort of pouring there was more there was like more that you could never finish this book basically you had to but you could write it forever and it would never feel finished yeah no it's a great it's a really great observation and i think that is exactly the thing that people are scared of when we when when somebody has been bereaved and somebody when you know somebody's you know parent has died or a friend of theirs has died or somebody close to them has died they have a kind of torrent going on inside them and we are scared of those feelings and what I was really trying to do in the book was to kind of put words around those feelings to articulate them because they're also really really hard to understand they're very kind of at times they're kind of psychedelic they're almost trippy they're very physically confusing you know you can become very kind of physically clumsy and so on and they are the biggest feelings you can have and they are really really scary and I think that that's you know when people say oh I don't you know I don't I can't begin to imagine how you're feeling or even in some cases you know cross to the other side of the road sort of hypothetically you know mm. metaphorically as it were to avoid to avoid people who are who are in a state of grief is fear of that torrent of feeling that's inside us and being allowed to feel it being allowed to articulate it being allowed to remember the person being allowed to cry being able to have the different emotional responses feels like such an important way to honor not just a dead person but also to honor yourself as well and not to kind of suppress it we suppress so much in life in the west we are Mm. all of us are suppressed in the west we just are we don't know how to grieve we don't know how to properly celebrate like we've lost all of that because we we, we think we shouldn't Mm. we're we're embarrassed Mm. and also like you say we don't we don't know what to do with those big Mm. feelings whether they're Mm. really good or bad Mm. we don't know what to do with it but in this book you you are in grief and you are living it and also the other thing as well as this sort of never-ending beautiful never-ending quality to it because you could tell that you you could have just kept writing was this observation of the vividness of colour around you constantly and I'd love to know why that felt important when talking about grief why colour sort of underpins so much of this book when my sister died, she died, so she had been diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015 and she had stage four cancer. So she, and everything that happened in Nell's life was big and dramatic. And in a way, her cancer behaved like her life had behaved. You know, she had, she, Nell had her own circus. She wasn't like a kind of sort of, she didn't live in a muted way at all. And, um, but when she died, she died very, very, very quickly. So a few days before she died, she was told she had like possibly five years, you know, maybe even a bit longer than that. Then she died within the space of two days. She got sudden liver failure. And my life at that point, I felt as though I was, when I was called into the hospital, I felt as though I was standing in a corridor with a kind of massive red train careering towards me or a massive bull galloping to me, something completely out of control, which was the presence of death coming down and just taking her you know sort of you know describe it doing its thing taking taking her away and that is a huge life-shattering conscious shattering thing to go through to stand there and watch death happening there's nothing you can do about it at all we're used to controlling so much in our lives there's nothing you can do about it I remember thinking almost like death was a person like just stop I'm not ready this I'm not ready for this I knew this was going to happen at some point but two or three years I would have been ready I don't think you're actually ever ready you know and so when it happened I felt as if my life had been completely shattered and I really felt as though I 
might die from the pain. The pain of the death of somebody you love is so physically excruciating, mentally tormenting. But I was also at that time really aware of a strange kind of breaking open of myself and I felt like sensually absolutely awakened to everything that was going on around me and I started noticing like very very bright colour like a bowl of fruit would suddenly be really really brightly coloured or an animal a deer I live in the countryside but like a deer across the other side of the field would be bright brown in a really really beautiful way and I thought um in my incredibly confused, incredibly traumatised, incredibly shocked state, I was aware that I sort of wanted to record this feeling of colour because it wasn't normal and it wasn't like the rest of life, which can go through quite kind of muted, grey, you know, normal life can be a bit boring as well, can't it, actually, when we're just getting the kids Mm -hmm. to school, doing work, cooking pasta yet again. Whereas suddenly... (laughs) (laughs) Fucking pasta. Every day I think, what am I going to cook? And it's fucking pasta. (laughs) Pesto or tomato? I mean, what do we do? Well, at that point, pesto takes on a surreal quality. (laughs) 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 And I was aware that I was in this, like, surreal landscape and what was happening was so awful, but there was a kind of shattering of myself as well that that was exciting. And in the same way that, you know, I've got five kids, I've given birth lots of times, and I have also been extremely depressed after birth. But um, I think that when you stand beside death, when you stand in you know beside birth as well you are disturbed and you should be disturbed because it's a fucking full-on thing to be happening so that was the color that I felt kind of pouring out of me but that was also at the same time as feeling as though I really 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 wanted to die as well you know I really really wanted to become nothing and the color I suppose was a way of like kind of holding on to bits of life and trying to navigate my way through the days and find stuff that was extraordinary and I had this really strong sense of of being, I use the metaphor of a forest and like a kind of, if you imagine a kind of pre-Raphaelite painting or something with roses and thorns and dragons and that was this landscape that I had to find my way across which was just getting through the day to day in the kind of first year of grief and I think that first year is the time of bright colour it's the magical thinking that Joan Didion writes about but it doesn't go on forever so it's valuable as well. I just find it so interesting because often, in a very clichéd way, we think death, grey, dull, murky. But you describe that first year with such vividness and this glorious colour, even death being given this sort of petrol blue Mm. colour, which Mm. was like, wow, yeah, I can see that in that sort of synthesisia sort of Mm. way that it's all connected to emotion and life and... And like you say, you know, it cracks open the mundanity of everyday stuff, Mm. all the stuff that we have to do when death or birth is there. We can't sweat the small stuff. We can't, Mm. you know, worry Mm. about silly bullshit Mm. because we're all going to die and we don't want to think about that. So we have to busy ourselves Mm. just going about all the daily stuff, keeping the little narrative in our head of this is who I am Mm. and these are all the problems I have. Because if we really go there and think about it, we'd have to change so much of our life, our day-to-day living. I think that that's the thing. I wanted to put the microscope over that feeling. It's exactly the thing that, as you say, we don't want to think about it. Yet it is happening to everybody all the time it's going to happen to everybody that you love it's going to happen to you it's going to happen to me it's going to happen to our children we you know but we pretend for some reason that it's a sort of 
dark, as you say, a kind of muted dark thing that happens in a in a dark shaded place that we don't have to look at. But if we actually do look at it, I think there's huge value in kind of illuminating the time that we do have and illuminating the space that we do have. Death, death does something to you. When, when somebody that you love dies, your life is suddenly the life that you do not want at all. You know, I would have done anything to get my sister back. I'd do anything to kind of have a conversation with her. And you fight against that for quite a long time. When you're still close to the date of the death, it's as though you can reach back, reach into the past. Maybe I could change things. You know, maybe I can like grab her or maybe I could go on with her as well. Maybe I can somehow find her. But obviously you can't. And so you end up with a life that you don't want for a while, but it is your life. And it is in kind of really forensically examining that. It's like, okay, this isn't what I wanted at all, but how am I going to change my life? And it was interesting because after Nell died in 2019, the pandemic was very, very shortly after that. And everybody in March 2020 was talking like, when are we going to get back to normal? When are we going to get back to normal? And I felt very preoccupied by that phrase because I thought there is no normal. Normal is gone and I don't want to go backwards. I want to go forwards and find out who I become in the next bit of my life. And actually I want to go on, you know, sort of in relation to the pandemic. How can we change through this? The idea that you just go back, you regress in a way. We have to evolve. And and the book was my attempt I suppose, to kind of find how I would evolve as a person. And you are, you know, I am totally changed by Nell dying. In what way? Um, I have much more desire to be and live in the way that I want to live. I don't want to waste time with, with stuff that doesn't really interest me. I feel, as you said, you know, that desire to get straight down to the proper conversation quickly. I don't want to sort of waste time with chit chat, I suppose. Um, I feel much more interested in creativity. Death has done something. Nell was a, like an intensely creative person. You know, she had her own circus, but she was also painting, sewing, cooking. She wrote multiple different books. And she was a big creative person to be around. And when, and in a way, as her younger sister, I sometimes felt well, Nell's the creative one. Like Nell's the kind of one who occupies that big creative space. And when she died, I did honestly feel as though there was more space for me creatively as well. And I felt as though in my writing, I could take myself and hopefully take the reader to places that were really, really interesting. And that kind of the colour, sometimes I see it like a, you know, when you see in films or something, somebody going to a jeweller and there's like loads of coloured jewels all over and they're choosing a ring or something like that or or in a mine or something like that and there's coloured jewels all over all over a table it feels like that it's like these are little brightly coloured kind of emeralds and rubies and sapphires and how can I pick them out how can I find them but they're not there's a really 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 hard one too you know they're not just that kind of there is a cliche that people say well you know you'd all the the kind of it means that you don't worry. All you all you really worry about is spending time with the people you love and doing stuff that you want to do. But you still have to do all the boring shit yeah, as course. well. <coughs> it's, it's not so pesto, that pesto. goes away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the pesto still exists yeah. exactly. But it's um, I suppose trying to kind of go to the heart of the matter quickly and live a life that feels as vivid as I possibly can make it. And talking about death and embracing death and thinking about death and living with death around me in the most colourful 
lively way that I possibly can. I mean, I almost wanted to call the book not this is not another fucking grief memoir <laughs> because there are so many. And, you know, I think people think grief, it is about a kind of muting, a shading, a quietening. I hope that my book and how I'm living now is like punching into a kind of brighter place, mm. a, more, a more alive place, a more vivid place, a more um, less bullshit place. Yeah. I mean, it, without doubt, is a book about life in equal measures to death. Mm. I, I didn't feel like yeah. this was a book just about death. Yeah. You can sense it and feel it in the way that you've described colour also. And I wonder, going back to when you were sort of saying, you know, you don't have time for, for the stuff you don't want to do mm. anymore. Mm. And there is, a, I don't know if you would describe it this way, but perhaps a sense of urgency about what you want to do. Mm. How do you stop that from turning into panic? Because... When I've lost people in my life or, you know, this is strange, timely subject we're talking about. Even just this morning, mm. turned on my phone, doing some text messages, look at Instagram. This amazing guy called Jamal Edwards, who I was relatively good friends with. I'd known him for years, see him every year or so, had amazing conversations with him. Out of the blue, gone. You know, young guy, beautiful, beautiful person, just so much to give and I I was sort of in shock and mm. I can very very I mean panic is a go-to for me mm. I, I can go rather than go right I need to be urgent about what I want to do and I need to put in those I love and no more bullshit mm. just do the things I want to do I take it too far into I'm, I'm panicked I feel mm. panicked about it mm. have you found a way to navigate that I don't think I do feel panicked about death. I feel utterly accepting of it and almost quite curious about it, I suppose. I do feel as though there will be a place that I go on to in some way or another. I don't have a strong sense of how that will be, but I am definitely... I mean, I sometimes think about my sister and I think... I really wonder what she's doing now. I have a really strong sense that she's really busy and that she is living, not living, that's the, she is existing in a place where she's getting something done. And there's a brilliant poem that I love by Christopher Logue about a man whose girlfriend dies and he sees her and he dreams about her. And I can't remember the name of the poem, but she's, she comes back and she says, I've got to go because I'm so busy. And actually even thinking about that makes me feel really emotional because... Um, it, it gets rid of the panic. If this isn't the only place that there is, if there is a whole other realm, and I do believe there is, then you don't have... There is there is no panic, basically. Mm. And I suppose... I mean, I guess I do feel a sense sometimes, you know, with the people that you really love, you do feel how many more... To, and I think the, the pandemic really did this to people. How many more times am I going to see you? How many... You know, especially when we were all separated from one another. But communicating love to the people that you love so that they know so that they absolutely know feels like a very important thing to do mm. and almost beyond that there really isn't actually anything else that particularly matters so that message of love feels like an important thing and I think that that does kind of calm the panic a bit and a sense of sense of something else and also a sense of creativity and that can be I think bringing that into your life in as many ways possible and I didn't used to think of myself as a creative person at all I really didn't I remember saying to Nell I'm not creative which is wild because you've written so beautifully for so many years <laughs> you're so you're a creative machine <laughs> but I didn't for some reason feel as though I had a right to it I don't know it's such an odd thing creativity because there is a kind of mystique around it mm. isn't there I didn't even until quite recently think of myself as when I was a journalist 
and I was making a living as a as a journalist. But now my sort of desire to write and my desire to express myself and my desire to connect with people and enable other people to connect with their feelings because that's what I absolutely love about writing. I love about social media as well is the fact that people can can message and say um, I've had an experience really similar to you and people who've been reading the book early readers have been saying you know my mother died six years ago I didn't really know what I was feeling at the time it's all a blur and I read your book and it's bringing everything up and I'm kind of able to to see it and crystallize it and understand it and that feels like a huge privilege to me I feel so lucky to do that Mm. so I think Creativity is a kind of antidote to panic. Love and creativity, I suppose. Mm. And like you say, that sense of we don't know what Mm. comes after death. Mm. And it's always a brilliantly humbling conclusion to come to, which it would be good if there were sort of, you know, world leaders thought in this way, politicians especially, like, we don't know fucking anything. Yeah. We can't walk around going, yeah. this is how the world works, this is what's what. Mm. We don't, if we don't know what happens after we die, we know nothing. Mm. Like, we literally know mm. nothing. Mm. We can learn stuff, whatever, but mm. we don't actually know mm. anything. Mm. And we had a similar chat to a previous guest, Bjorn Nathiko Limblad, who's this amazing forest monk, and he knew that he wouldn't be alive um, as the podcast aired. And we touched on that subject because he was very willing to be open about, you know, knowing that he was going to die. Mm. And although, again, you know, he'd had this monastic life and and lived with a certain set of beliefs for 17 years, mm. he was still really open to what would come next, but mm. in a really excited, joyful way. That's so interesting. Yeah, he, he, he said, I, I hope I'm... I go on to have a... I think he used the word adventure even. Yeah, I love that. And that poem, I'd love to read that poem that you talked about yeah, a I'll moment send it ago. To you. I will because send it to you. Because I had this dream the night after my friend Lindell had, had died. I didn't have a dream about her the night that she had died, but the night after... Myself and another one of her friends, we'd been texting the next day, had a had a dream, a very vivid dream about her the next night. And we met in a market and she passed me a pair of boots and she was in she was in a rush. She was busy. She was like, have these, gave me a quick hug. She wasn't particularly emotional. I was bawling my eyes out. And she was off and she was busy. She, she was had busy. shit to do. She was on a mission. She was mm. on a mission. And it felt so real in the moment. It was so it's just extraordinary you saying that. It's Well, I think that sort of feeling of, um, well, the idea that you can, I had a dream, which I write about in the book. I don't write about dreams too much, but there's a little bit that I write about. And there was somebody who that I had a love affair with in my early 30s, so I absolutely was passionately, madly in love with him, this Russian guy. And then he, I found out that he had died about four years ago. And after Nell died, I had a really, really vivid dream about him being there, not just there as a kind of spirit or something other. He was there, like, beside my bed. And he said, no, no, don't worry. Like, Tamerlan, who told me about her death, he got it wrong. He got the dates wrong. He got everything wrong. I'm not dead. And I felt so grateful to him because I thought, well, if you're not dead, you're not gone. No, he said, I'm not gone. Then that means Nell's not gone as well. And I think that kind of sense of a almost... And that's what I do when I try to talk to the children, a kind of playfulness, if it's almost possible, to, around death. And on the day that Nell got her secondary diagnosis and we'd been in the hospital and we drove off... Um, I didn't write about this, what she said, but we went to this 
kind of wildflower meadow that our mum used to take us to near the village where we grew up and we were just kind of in this field together. And then I had to drop her off back at her work and she had on, like, she was dressed in her very kind of typically extravagant and glamorous way. She was wearing like a long floor-length fur coat. She had shaved blonde head, massive Gucci shades. And she said to me, and it had been, you know, we'd just been told she had secondary cancer that was moving rapidly through her body. And so she ha- she was facing, and I just remember her pushing her hand up to her forehead like that. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. It was absolutely terrifying. And, you know, you don't feel as though you can breathe. All the kind of cliches of, like, the the floor feels unstable, everything. But a, a few hours after that, she said, look, don't worry about me. Just look after you. Look after... And she talked about her children as well. She said, look after you. Don't worry about me. Because anyway, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be a dead legend. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> because I don't have to worry about her now. I know that she is... I mean, I miss her massively. Yeah. I would do anything to be with her. I would do anything to have conversa- more conversations with a, with her, but I can't. And and the kind of acceptance of that, I suppose, of the bowing down before death and saying it is there, it is this massive force that we can't control, it's going to happen, has got to be a liberating force as well. And I suppose that's the kind of... Playful is maybe the, is too light a word, but it's there, it's like the... It's like the the tide coming in and out you know it's there it's the air it's yeah. it's it's everything it's the leaves it's everything mm. we can't stop it ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A really important part of the book, which I think will be of great comfort to many people that are experiencing grief at the moment, is... The fact that grief isn't linear, it's not like, you know, there is obviously that cliche that time heals and I'm sure there's an element of truth in it, but it's not linear. It's not like each day you feel a bit better and you talk really eloquently about that and how sometimes you were dragged back into the past or you were dragged back into a really heavy grief after having felt okay about things. And I just think that that's really important for people to hear if they do feel like maybe they're going backwards if there is such a thing in grief or they're not where they should be I find it bizarre that anyone thinks there's a set of rules as to how you're meant to yeah. deal with yeah. the the bit that you're, the grief after someone's mm. gone this to me seems like you have to have ultimate agency over how you want to deal with that mm. information, mm. processing it mm. expressing it, like mm. why should there be rules as to like because me and Jesse talk about this often that he sometimes goes to me, you know, his mum died very suddenly of a drug overdose 16 years ago. And sometimes he'll just be dragged back there. It could be something he's seen on telly. Yeah. Or it could be someone's said something to him in the day yeah. or whatever it might be. And he goes, should I still feel like this 16 years later? And it's like, what's the, there's no should to any of yeah. it. You, you're, how can you, we, as humans, we can't, we don't know what happens after we die. We can't make sense of any of, mm. any of it. It is sort of nonsensical. Mm. Mm. So however you want to explore it mm. and express it is 
the right way, mm. surely. Mm. And to feel to feel it as well. Yeah. Because it's the weirdness of life going on is really quite hard to get your head around. Like sometimes I I go, What Nell's dead? Nell's dead. No, she can't have died. That's my sister. Like, you know, that couldn't have happened. She didn't have cancer five years ago, whatever it was now. And I think the kind of um I suppose it's the aftershock, you know, the long-term aftershocks as well. And I think I'll probably always, yeah, I think I'll always go on having that feeling. But it is also weird, like, the the sense that life has changed. Life has changed totally since she died because of the pandemic as well. And time is moving forward and she's moving further into the past. I find that really difficult. And in a way, that those moments of remembering what you were saying about Jessie saying, well, should I feel that? It's actually really... Sometimes it's quite nice when you mm. feel really hit by it again as well. Yeah. And I guess that is the complexity of grief, isn't it? Because it's not... Grief isn't one thing. It's got this label, but it's got all this these little sub-labels of, like, anger, frustration, mm. confusion, mm. regret, mm. guilt. Mm. Like, there's all of these offshoots that you have to deal with within it. Mm. And I guess sometimes when you get hit by that big grief where it's Mm. maybe simpler you just feel bereft Mm. and sad Mm. is easier than dealing with all the other bits that come with it and I know you you talk a lot about guilt within the grief Mm. and you know like I was just saying a minute ago you've got this expectation of it being linear like anything where where it's you moving forward you're moving away from from the pain or Mm. from the intensity of it which doesn't exist. And of course, there'll be moments where you have a mundane day Mm. or maybe further down the line, you have a day where you felt truly happy in a moment, Mm. joyful, you laughed. Mm. And you talk about there being a lot of guilt and actually at times even shame attached to some of that as Mm. well. Mm. Yeah, and I think that sort of feeling of the switch, you know, you're on a, I'm aware of being on a path that like has many different kind of... um, twists and turns in it and that you do suddenly go backwards not backwards but you suddenly get kind of caught short by it or like knocked down I often think it feels like as though you're walking along you're completely fine and then something will happen which takes you back then like on Saturday evening I literally just was I should have been happy everything was fine everything was fine at home the kids were fine my husband had just come back from being away for ages but I just had to go and lie down in bed because the pain of suddenly of missing Nell was so bad and also, yeah, the shame that you can have in... You, ha- you have moments of such joy in life. There are moments of such beauty. And the feeling that she isn't here and the feeling that she's missing out on it definitely kind of takes, take, has taken me back to a moment of... Um, I suppose that's regret, really, more than, more than shame, exactly. But then there are, and also I found sex really interesting as well, because like when you start having sex after somebody has died, and there is a sort of feeling that like sometimes when you've been around death, it makes you want to have sex more. It makes you kind of horny because you're like asserting yourself against, you know, you're asserting your life over death. And I found a desire to, to you know, to have sex in the first, when it happened a couple of weeks, whatever, after Nell had died. I felt very, very 
complex about that and very confused about that and how can I be wanting that kind of ecstatic experience and she's and she's dead you know and there are versions of that all the way through your life whether it's the joy of eating or you know the joy of a beautiful view and I suppose that's the important thing is to keep on finding those places I suppose and and continuing to assert the moments you have in your life and I, and I guess that's as well, that's like the antidote, again, to the panic that you were talking about, is finding them and trying to not feel shame around them, just feel intense joy around them, is kind of fundamental to human happiness as well and to our human days. Did you find it difficult to trust in those moments, though, knowing that, you know, the worst thing possible had happened and you weren't expecting it in that moment? Mm, mm. Did you have trouble leaning into good stuff and, and trusting that it was there, existed? Yeah, and I, um, it does exist, it is there, but it can also go at any point at all. And um, I think that you kind of, to start with, there's a feeling of, of almost like being, and I write about this, like being a child that doesn't know how to, like a baby learning to walk, that you, you just feel there is not going to be any more joy. There is no more joy in my life. That's what I felt after Nala died. I felt like I was in this kind of dark, enclosed space and I was going to stay alive and I was going to go through all the stuff that I had to do. I'd look after my kids. I'd have a relationship with my husband, see my friends, but there would be no more joy. And that was a kind of Un, very very unstable place to be in but my only certainty was that it would be dark and then the moments do start happening and that's what's kind of incredible and that's what makes me believe in the human spirit because you do find joy again you know you are in the darkest place possible and then the joy comes back and you do have to learn yeah you do have to learn how to trust it you almost have to learn how to work that muscle again you know when you go into depression and you start going down and you can kind of, you almost feel like you're making the grooves in your mind and you're slipping down and down and down. You can feel those grooves happening. You have to resist those grooves. And sometimes you have to give yourself over to it and go and lie down or just scream or... I mean, I actually found it really useful sometimes when I just wanted to feel misery was to, like, look at her photos because it's so painful looking at her pictures. And... and and this was actually something a therapist told me sometimes, just like go and shut the door to your bedroom and allow yourself to be present to the pain of it and allow yourself to completely feel it. And then go back and be a mother or go back and have a relationship with your friends and allow yourself that time to be separate from normal life and then allow yourself to be separate from death as well and allow yourself some joy. And that was quite helpful so that you can kind of form habits, I suppose, around finding the things which are pleasurable. I also stopped drinking a few months ago and I've actually found that as a way of finding greater moments of joy in in uh in my in my immediate life around me and also because Nell's death because it was followed by the pandemic all of our lives became really really localized didn't they they just became like our house and our mm. garden if we were lucky enough to have a garden and um kind of finding the ridiculous finding the you know we were all sort of thrown onto we were having to use every resource we had really weren't we and sometimes I see the process of walking through life after death after the death of somebody you you love it's like mining you are and that's what you know that's that kind of image of the jewels that I think of as you're looking for those little jewels and they are they are there they are hard won but they are there 
How do you know personally when to stop yourself from slipping into depression versus allowing yourself to just embrace it and take yourself to bed for the day or whatever it might be? I think um, you have to also be uh, alert to just exhaustion as well because grief is a very, very physical experience and it's really, really tiring and it makes you feel... Sometimes it makes you feel as though you've been kind of bashed around the head or concussed or something like that and I guess that's your mind your brain trying to trying to kind of sort through it and sift through everything this huge shocking thing that's happened to you recognize and this is the same for anybody with any any human being actually isn't it that like when you're tired be kind of alert to that and sometimes when I'm feeling on on Saturday evening when I had to go and lie down I thought actually I think I'm also just really, really, really tired. Yeah. I've just done like three weeks of the kids on my own. I'm really, really tired. So I'm going to just go and lie down. And that is totally, totally fine. I've got a good friend who always talks about like, just get horizontal. And so there are moments when you have to kind of rest yourself. And that's really, really important. I knew in the first few months after Nella died that I had was having moments of depression where I just wanted to go to bed. I just, you know, the feeling of shut the curtains and get under the duvet and not face life and allow yourself to do that sometimes, you know, allow that, allow that for quite long periods. Mm. But then if there is a sunny day or if there is a friend who's turned up and this friend of mine came over a few weeks after Nell died and I was just lying in bed crying and she like pulled me out of bed, this friend Helen, made me get up and made some joke about she has some joke about yoga actually and like she really really made me laugh about having been at a yoga class and they were made to do the corpse but they said the corpse position it was called and she said she thought well that's a that's a bit heavy right now. <laughs> she made me laugh and I was lying in bed crying and she just made me start laughing mm. and um to kind of just go, go, you know, go there with, and it will be quite short periods of time. That short, the joy is there for a short period of time, but it is, but it is it there. Counts. Mm. It counts. Mm. You say in the book, you know, and I completely concur with this one. There is nothing more annoying than when you're feeling depressed and mm. someone says, "Try some breathing exercises yeah. or whatever." <laughs> and um, I guess a lot of that sort of stuff fires me up and makes me want to really look at the work that I'm trying to do with Happy Place Mm. and that we need to have a really clear definition between mental health and mental illness Mm. and there's some stuff that really you know benefits your mental health breathing walking doing Mm. yoga whatever the hell it is Mm. but when you are mentally unwell Mm. whether it's chemical imbalance or circumstantial Mm. That stuff is not going to touch the sides. Mm, it's mm. you know I've been there. It's not going to do anything. Mm. It's much like with I get insomnia and I, ha- I had really bad insomnia last night. And and people will often say to me, "Oh, I've got this amazing lavender spray," and I'm thinking, <laughs> "Oh my god, I could drink it and I would. It, it wouldn't, wouldn't do any anything. Difference. Like I am. Yeah. In, I'm panicked. Mm. I'm in panic. My mm. heart is racing, and I think it's really important we have that distinction. Mm. And it's probably quite helpful if you feel a sort of awkwardness when you're approaching someone that is in grief as to what advice you impart or what you say Mm. because there's often you can't do anything Mm. all you can do is show up and listen yeah and I think that that's really really important and I think we're so worried about saying the wrong thing we're so worried about people's feelings and this this torrent that we started talking about 
And in a way, there isn't, there is no right or wrong thing to say because everybody is completely different. But the only thing that you can do is be there for for people. And some people want like, they want to talk about the person at length. Some people want to cry. Somebody just wants to, you know, not cry and maybe go for a walk and talk about something completely unrelated. Somebody is really grateful for a tray of lasagna taken to their to their door. They're, everybody's reaction is different. But I don't think anybody would ever feel Oh, Fern reached out to me, and I didn't want—I didn't want to see her at yeah. that point. I didn't want to be to be kind of given a message of love or connection. Do we? We don't. That I mean, you know, we don't. Everybody wants to feel. Everyone wants in that to moment. feel. Yeah, even if it's just to say, "I'm thinking about you." I'm loving you. You know, I'm yeah. thinking about whoever the person is. We can't. We can't fix it, and we're not going to fix it. No. So you can't try. You just got to. I guess be to show up and to be show there. up and not be worried but not be ashamed by the state that you might be in or the estate that your friend might be in the person who who is bereaved don't be scared by the feelings you know mm. we are all having the feelings and some people I'm quite often asked how can I write so openly and so honestly because I write so openly in all of my books about relationships and family and marriage and drugs and sex and myself and all of my emotions I put it all there and everything that I'm feeling is what you have felt and it's what anybody who is reading these books or walking down the street you know what and what I'm expressing is nothing unknown it's nothing non-human it's all utterly familiar stuff and connecting is what makes us human and what helps us to get through the fucking difficult days of being a human as well it's difficult um so I think that sense of kind of being there for somebody and just saying I'm here and I love you can't really be wrong no and I think going back to what you just said you know you you are explicitly honest in in all your writing and I think that's the greatest gift you can give people especially with this book if we just look at this book isolated with grief Mm. because you're giving people permission to have their feelings Mm. because even when you're talking around regret I think we all believe that we're the only one that feels regret Mm. around Mm. that person not being here anymore Mm. and I wish I could have done this Mm. I should have done that Mm. why didn't I do this and then you realize everybody's feeling this I I, I was talking to my my friend who passed away last year I was talking to her partner and saying I I feel like I need to admit stuff to you and if you don't want me to say this to you fine because you're carrying enough stuff but I have regret that Mm. stupid shit like I saw this coat once online and I texted her a picture of it and I thought why didn't I just buy her the coat and send it to her why didn't I do that Mm. why did I just send the picture Mm. stupid stuff that really bothered me after she'd passed away and he was like, do you know how many people have come to me with their regrets? Mm. Like we were using him as some sort of confessional, which was not okay, but we all felt like we needed to unburden ourselves of it. Mm. But he he has regret. Mm. Everybody has regret when someone's gone because of course you could have spent more time with them. You could always do more. You could have done more. You can always, always do more. And yet we, we are also human beings and we do have to live our, our own lives as well. And one of the most useful conversations I had was with Nell's oncologist and I said I just feel because when I look when I look back on her treatment I had like three very young children in quick succession and my husband had a terrible accident as well while she was having like treatment so there was a hell of a lot going on in my life and I look back at 
all the appointments she went to and I went to many of them but I still think why didn't I go to more and you know sometimes I look at my phone and I see a text message of her saying do you want to have lunch next week and or do you want to have lunch today and then saying oh no I'm on a deadline or something like that and I think oh fuck you know why didn't I just go and do that why and this oncologist said what you I said I just feel so regretful that I wasn't there for more appointments and that I ever had any arguments with her and that you know we had a blazing row like a couple of months before she died and he said Every single patient of thousands and thousands of families that he's dealt with articulates exactly what you're talking about. And it is part of like grieving, basically, and part of kind of understanding that your human days relationship with that person is over. You can't send her the, you know, you can't send her the coat anymore. I can't take Nell to another appointment. But you have to let go of the regrets because she will have known, you know, mm. she will have known that you loved her. The fact that mm. you were you were sending her a picture at all. Nell knew that I loved her. And, you know, that's all that matters, not the regrets. That feeling of the love and holding on to that and the memory of that. And also saying to the people, again, like going back as a way of stopping the panic, saying to the people that you love... I love you and showing affection to your friends mm. and showing kind of, I mean, it's impossible to be an endlessly patient kind of yeah. person who's there all the time. But um, that feeling of sort of human connection and human love is really, really so important, isn't mm. it? And you can never tell people you love them enough. Never. <laughs> and you can never thank them enough. It makes me feel very mm. grateful whenever... I hear about somebody dying or that I've known or whatever. I feel such gratitude for the people that I do have. And I feel compelled. I need to tell them immediately. Mm. Like, mm. I am so grateful mm. for you. Because we don't in everyday life. Mm. We just go, mm. whoever it is you're on the phone to, one of your parents or cousin, whoever. Mm. See ya, see you next week, whatever. Rather than thank you I'm so grateful, grateful for you yeah. I'm grateful that you're in my life yeah. we don't say it enough and we can't say it enough because it makes us feel a bit embarrassed doesn't it saying yeah. I'm a I, and I've got a couple of friends who are really really old friends and they are quite old as well and I've written to them quite a few times talking to that you know writing down about the ways in which I am grateful to the way this man has affected my life this guy Mark who's a really 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 old friend so important and I really want him to know I want him to be sure but at the same time, it does feel an unusual—it's unusual, isn't it? It's not—it's mm. not kind of normal. And I suppose in this kind of writing that I'm doing, I'm trying to normalise more of these feelings, and hopefully helping other people to feel them as well. I mean, hugely, uh, undoubtedly, that's exactly what you're doing, and why it's so powerful. And uh, and another moment that really. Um, sprung out at me in the book is when you're talking about your sort of oscillating feelings towards signs you know mm. one moment you you were loving you felt close to your sister yeah. because you had a sign and the next minute you felt foolish or like you were sort of seeking her out chasing her mm. somehow and, and mm. I found that really interesting because often we, and I, I'm probably guilty of this, that I can too quickly leap to, oh, I got this amazing sign and I cling onto mm. it, you know, like just cling on, will not let go of this this thing, whatever it might be, a feather or whatever yeah. cliche is yeah. about. And actually it's so much more complex than that and it can bring about feelings that aren't particularly great mm. also. Mm. Yeah, I think the sign thing is really interesting and it's a way it's a bit like... Um, 
When you were talking about that, it made me think about crop circles, actually, and the way, you know, there, there are all these crop circles that were made, especially, I think, about decade ago, people finding these weird crop patterns in their in their fields. And were they real? Were they made by aliens? Or were they just made by people having a laugh? And does it ultimately actually really matter? (laughs) And what we want is we want to believe in the aliens. We want to believe in the signs. You want to believe in the feather that suddenly falls down in front of you as you're thinking about your, your friend or your mother or your sister. And I suppose that is... Because I have felt angry with myself with the signs. As you say, I was like, sometimes just like, there's a cat. Oh, that must be her. Well, actually, no, it's just the neighbour's cat, probably. Mm. Um, but the the desire to be, to believe in the signs is also a kind of beautiful thing. It's a very, very human thing, isn't it? And I suppose being a bit forgiving and gentle with yourself and believe in it and that's what the place I try to get to at the end of the book is like maybe the signs are real but maybe they're not real as well and I can't in the space of a book you know I certainly didn't want to say well every time I see a butterfly I know that I'm seeing Nell because that would just be too simple and silly really because it is so much more complex than that but maybe I am seeing her and it's beautiful that I want to feel that um, but maybe it's just a beautiful butterfly on a beautiful day. And that is also a really lovely, really valuable thing. Yeah. If it makes you feel good and connected to your sister mm. or whoever it is that's passed away, then does it matter? It doesn't matter. Like there's that yeah. beautiful story you tell, which I wept to where you're in your yard at home mm. and, and these three glorious oh, black horses yeah. walk towards you. Mm. I had goosebumps mm. reading that story and like you say, whether that was propelled by your sister's energy or it was just this magical moment, it was a beautiful moment. But I think that is what I mean in the way that death has like kind of enlivened me. It's woken me up to something because it was, I was just literally, you know, I live in the middle of the country and these three totally black horses on a cold day in November through the mist walked into my yard where I live it was very weird. They then like walked up to me and stood looking at me. And it was just so powerful. It was very strange anyway, seeing horses were just completely black. They didn't have any white on them. They didn't have head collars on or anything at all. I felt like this was the most fantastically beautiful moment in my life where a kind of sense of awe and wonder was awoken to me. And it was coming up towards the first anniversary of Nell's death. Shortly after that, this girl came running along. The horses had got out. They'd broken out of their fence and she had their hook collars. So they were just three horses that had got out. But they weren't just three horses that had got out. Like death had shown me how beautiful they were. And I wonder whether I would have felt that if I hadn't been so close to death. Mm. And that's what I mean by these like incredibly valuable but incredibly hard-won jewels and kind of um, the beauty that death can bring into your life and the light and the colour. And going back to your question about colour, that's kind of why I suppose the colour is so important because if you allow your brain to go through all the different things, allow it to feel the sorrow, allow it to sometimes go to sleep in the middle of the afternoon, allow it to feel rage, but then you will also allow it to find moments of really, really extraordinary wonder which you might not have been aware of before. Mm. And that's the kind of most optimistic and exciting place that I could get to, at, you know, sort of within the first, at the end of the first year. And I am, this is the life I have. I wish I had now, but this is the life I had. And so I'm 
trying my hardest to find those moments of awe and wonder that her death have have given me. I mean, at, towards the end of the book, you describe it so beautifully because you say, you know, the worst thing has happened, yet life's still going on. It's dazzling, yet so awful. Mm. And again, I just thought that was so, oh, beautiful. Yeah, the fact of life going on is still kind of like blows my mind that you know the most terrible things yeah. happen the people my mum and my sister like the two people that I'd completely and utterly adore and couldn't have imagined life without are dead and I'm in my mid-40s and they're dead and if I live a long life I might have another three or four decades without them in it and my children will grow up without them in it and yet I am going on as Everybody is really who's lost people that they love that we do go on. We do go on making lives that are beautiful, that are worthwhile. And it really that makes me believe that's what makes me believe in an afterlife, really, because our spirits are so strong. Mm. You know, we kind of in a way, rationally, we should just crumble. We should just lie down on the ground, not be able to do anything else ever again. This the most horrific thing has happened. But we don't. We keep going. And that is that's optimistic you know that's optimistic even when the worst things have happened and that's what makes me feel excited as well even though Nell is dead I feel really excited about the rest of my life and really excited about what it will bring and the and the kind of strange wonders that it will bring because it is that fact of it going on is is just extraordinary yeah again we can't make sense of that mm. we, we can't look mm. at the whys it's just it's an option mm. and you know as you've spoken about there you lost your mum to well, she was in care for a long time mm. because she was brain damaged from mm. an accident and then she she passed away and then obviously your sister's diagnosed with cancer your sister passes away how how do you deal with any anger that might be there because I know there's a lot of anger with grief on that level Mm. where there's a feeling of this isn't fair Mm. this isn't fair why have I had to lose two people that I love so dearly although there's that optimism I know it can live alongside Mm. other emotions Mm. so what do you do with that anger the anger is totally is there and it was and it was I think it was even stronger when I was so mum had this really bad riding accident when I was 16 which left her like permanently brain damaged for 22 years until when she died in 2013 and I felt absolute rage that this had happened especially when I was in my 20s and there were more people whose mothers were absolutely fine now I'm in my mid 40s more people have been dented and bruised by life and have you know difficult experiences that are more relatable I suppose The anger, I think you just have to allow the anger to exist. It will be there. Certainly when I had young, well, I still have young children, but when I had my first lot of young children and I'd see other women with their mothers, I felt like green with furious rage that I didn't have for my mother. Now, I guess I feel a bit more accepting of this process because it will come to everybody. And I feel... I feel gratitude for the life that I have and that's what I try to kind of allow to override the anger. The anger, it doesn't go away. I still feel furious that Nell's dead. I still, you know, when I see... It's difficult not to feel angry with friends who are kind of complaining about their mom or something like that. That that has always been a difficult one for me. But I feel so... I do genuinely feel so grateful that I had so much love from my mum for 16 years and I feel so grateful I really do feel grateful for what 
death is showing me in my life now. And I try to think of Nell's life as her lifetime, not that she had another four decades that we were all robbed of, but she had an extraordinary life and that was her lifetime. I have no idea how long my lifetime is going to be, but um, I have to accept that that was hers and it wasn't going to be any longer. And I think that is a way of kind of dealing with the anger really because otherwise you could go on like just walking around in a state of fury that she's not she's not around to talk to certainly when the pandemic happened also she loved extreme experiences and I just remember thinking I just would love to talk to you about like especially Mm. the first lockdown when it was you know very very strange like how are you dealing with this because she would have been so funny and I miss the joke I miss the jokes the kind of jokes that she and I had together I don't have those kind of jokes with anybody else. We talk, we joked about things that nobody else knows about or will ever know about. And I can't, even with her closest friends, I can sometimes feel I'm kind of like getting there a bit. But those are my jokes with Nell. And I just have to have them with my, sometimes I have them with myself. I'm walking around, I think of something that would have made her laugh about the things that we laughed about. That's one of the bits of the book that literally split me in two was when you had like your catchphrases or your little words mm. like pure new mm, wool you would say wool. to each other and I I mean yeah that's that's the stuff that you miss isn't it mm. yeah just ridiculous Ridic- we had this phrase I don't even know where it came we used to say pure new world <laughs> and I don't know why we did and I remember once I went to her house and she wasn't there and there was a blackboard like behind the cooker and I wrote pure new wool on it <laughs> she said I just saw it I just there was she she'd loved it that she'd seen it and obviously it couldn't have been written by anybody else at all <laughs> but doesn't it show like in life it's not the big stuff no that I know council you remember mm. it's the tiny mm private things mm. and it's the little moments that really connect you it's not a fancy holiday no, no, or exactly yeah you know something extreme that we're all striving for mm. in life like we think oh once i get that great job or once i get to go on that amazing holiday mm. the bits that really count are these tiny moments tiny it's so tiny 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 moments and in a way sometimes it's only like it's in through Nell's death that I've understood more about our relationship, I suppose, and understood how valuable those little moments of connection are. And I think trying to, I mean, it's been wonderful writing about her because I felt, although the book isn't, the book is about, is a kind of about my reaction to her death more than about who she was because I sort of wanted her to be this like, as she has been to me, this kind of fleeting figure that I'm trying to reach towards. But writing about her, and I've written a book about her, but it could, you know, I think there's so much value in, like, writing a diary or um, writing poems or short stories or whatever, but, like, remembering people and kind of working the muscle of remembering them as well. It's one of the things I love about writing memoirs, that I'm sure that I'm getting better at remembering things because I'm being... I'm making myself do it all the time. Mm. I mean, and it may be writing or it may be just um, talking about that person. I think, you know, we were talking about what can you do for people who are who are grieving. Years later, talk about what that person was like. I love it when I meet someone who says, oh, I knew your mum. I was like, well, what was she like? Mm. You know, tell me what was she like? I think that that's a kind of a really, really joyful feeling is sometimes as well, if you meet somebody who you know has been bereaved 
and the person that they have lost, you haven't known that person. But if you say, well, what was your son like? You know, what did he enjoy doing? What kind of boy was he? People really, really respond to that. And I think that's a kind of loving, generous thing that you can do to help people in grief as well. We're constantly bumping into people in our local area that knew Jesse's mum really well, his late mum. And it's always the most hilarious situation because they've always got an amazing anecdote. And Jesse loves it, like hearing a totally different perspective and account of his mum. And we actually about, when was it? It was when, I guess, maybe I was pregnant with Honey, actually, maybe six, seven years ago. We threw a party here on the anniversary of his mum's passing to sort of celebrate her. And we invited all of her old mates. I I didn't get to meet Jessie's mum because she passed away before I met Jessie. I didn't know all of her friends. But having them all here, they were like a bunch of hilarious teenagers. They're all sort of smoking in the garden, telling these brilliant old stories about her. And it was so... It was brilliant for me because I got to learn about who she was from all these different groups of people. Mm. And for Jessie, it was just so amazing to have this sort of like full-bodied story of who she was like all corners covered of you know who she was as a friend who she was as a relative who she was as a child because she had old friends there it was so special and as you said but none of those you know none of those people would have been talking about going on an extravagant holiday with her they would have had funny memories hilarious memories and ridiculous memories about the the day-to-day the normal the kind of little glancing Mm. funny human connections it's so interesting that isn't it that feeling that that the kind of remembering someone is in the is in those sort of little ridiculous moments it really, is. in everyday moments and their idiosyncrasies mm. and just funny bits that you probably can't even really articulate because mm. they're sort of they're yours mm. and you mm. know that thing about them so well mm. Mm. i think it does make you think about your everyday life and and what what you're aligning with you know so often we're aligning with the wrong stuff because society tells us Mm. we should be striving for all Mm. this excellence whatever Mm. it might be Mm. whereas you know as we've just covered that's not the stuff that's going to count it's just not Mm. for Mm. you and in the shape of your life but also to the people that you love it's going to be the everyday tiny bits yeah yeah and it's sort of that's quite a liberating thought as well isn't it that it it's is. like the way that you commute. I mean, it also shows that communication is so, so important. Yeah. The way that you talk to people, the way that you reach out to people, the way that you love people. Mm. That's what actually matters. Mm. It is. Mm. It is. I feel like I could talk to you for five years. I just glanced at my laptop a minute ago and went, how have we been already talking for over an hour? It feels like <laughs> 10 minutes to no, me. No, I know. I know. Well, I think there's such an interesting... Co- I think death is just... And because death is not death, it's life, mm. you know. It's like the most important conversation. And that's why I wanted the book to be colourful And because death is life. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds like a cliche, but it is. It's everything in yep. a way. And to be able to have, well, to connect with people about it is really important. So it isn't this. I think we also think like when someone dies, something terrible, obviously something terrible has happened. Something has gone wrong. But it also hasn't. It is just it is just life. And so I've also been trying to stop thinking of like, well, that was the terrible year when this, you know, when Nell died. It was a terrible year. 2019 was terrible the end of 2019. But now it's kind of globally more some part of the life that I have and the life that I have kind of 
ongoing with her in some way or another and the life that I have ongoing with my children. And she used to talk about, because my oldest son is 21, and she used to sometimes say, oh, don't you just feel really relieved that Jimmy's like 21 and he's like the younger ones are kind of coming up now and they can <laughs> sort of take over soon. <laughs> and that feeling of of life being a, I mean, sometimes I think of it as like a colourful ball and the ball just rolling onwards and onwards relentlessly. And um, I love reading about um, like ancient history. I, where I live in the countryside is near like several ancient sites like Avebury and Uffington Whitehorse. And I love to think of the emotional lives of those people 4,000 years ago, dragging stones across the country and making chalk horses. And what were they feeling? And what were they thinking? They were just human beings. Their life was very different to mine, but they were just human beings. And And I love kind of imagining what, it felt like to be them and then what it felt like to be now me thousands of years later and how much difference or lack of difference how much space or or you know closeness there is between us and it's a it's a relief as well yeah. you stop scared stop being scared about death and feel more kind of embracing of what we have now and yes it's going to be there but what a marvelous extraordinary adventure the next bit might might be too mm. and if you've lived a life where you have connected with people and you have loved the people around you you've loved your children then one day you will be i will be hopefully the person that people are talking about and you know remembering and fondly and wanting to kind of take forward as well mm. and i guess that's that's the best we can do as human. We can't take anything else forward, can we? No. After all, it's only our relationships with one another. Yeah, that is all there is. Mm. It literally mm. is that. Mm. It's, that's all there is. Because mm. you're not going to be afterwards going, oh, God, wasn't it amazing that they had that massive collection of shoes? Or wasn't it amazing <laughs> no, that they I know. had I know. all that money in the bank? We're no. never going to reminisce about no. that. No. Ever. No, I know. We've got it a bit topsy-turvy. Totally, and it's a very, like leveling very very positive kind of feeling that isn't it that it doesn't mm. it doesn't matter you can't take it forward mm. all you all you can do is like connect with people when you are alive maybe that could help me to be a better human being thinking about that more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all got work in that department to be done i think most nights i go to bed thinking oh, i wish i could i hope i'm a better mum tomorrow oh, like God, every yeah, night i think i could have done that better i think we're all trying our best and and, you know, thank you so much for, for talking about this really complex subject in, in such a brilliantly open way, as you have done in your beautiful book, that I I feel gutted now that I don't get to read it at night. I had this gorgeous <laughs> period of a week where I felt so cosy reading it oh. in bed. I felt really cosy and, and like it was just me and the book and that was all that existed and I feel you know that feeling of like you're bereft when a book's over mm. I, I, I really miss reading it and I, and I loved it so thank you so much and thank you so much for talking I'm today just so happy that it's connected so strongly mm. I loved it and um, it really makes me feel joyful that from this great sadness I felt of losing Nell that you had that experience with me and with her mm. as well in the reading. Mm. And that's that's so beautiful. And she would be really pleased with that as well. <laughs> I know she would be so pleased and that feeling of kind of connection. I'm it's it's a joy to hear that. But thank you so much. It's lovely. It's been it's been a joy. It's been wonderful talking about death and life in this way. I've loved it. 
Honestly, that did just go way too fast. I wanted to keep Clover at my house forever. It was so wonderful. She bought me a beautiful bunch of daffodils that are blooming in my kitchen now. Honestly, it was just the loveliest morning and I I so, so enjoyed that chat. And I really liked her David Bowie t-shirt as well. The Red of My Blood is out on the 10th of March and if you love the way Clover talks so frankly about death, you might also want to hear her thoughts on sex, motherhood, marriage and everything else in between. You can follow her on Instagram at clover.stroud for more of that. Definitely go follow her right now. While you're there, you can also follow us at Happy Place Official. I'll be back next week with an absolutely brilliant woman, another brilliant woman. I think you'll be incredibly motivated by her resilience, and tenacity. Until then, thank you so much again to Clover, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you. Thank you so much for being here. Love ya. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com